can take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians 15. I'll ask you, I don't have a sponsorship with Diet Coke, but this is what I have to drink, and I'm coughing like crazy, so I'll try not to cough on anyone else, and I'll drink this Diet Coke from time to time. 1 Corinthians 15. I don't think Diet Coke is looking for sponsors like me. What do you think? I don't, spokesmen like me, I don't think they're uh, interested in... Short, fat, bald, white guys to stand up and say, hey, I drink Diet Coke. I, they're probably looking for somebody else. No, I'm okay. This is all right. Thanks, Justin. Uh, uh, we are just going to read the first part of 1 Corinthians 15, and then we are going to do a major pivot, and I'll explain that in a minute. So 1 Corinthians 15, I am going to read uh, in preparation for the pivot, verses 1 through 19. So let's just read it together. Um, Paul writes, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved if you hold fast that word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve, after that he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we've testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. And now we will see his conclusion. Just read with me. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive, but each one in his own order. Christ, the first fruits. Afterward, those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. When he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet the last enemy that will be destroyed is death for he has put all things under his feet but when he says all things are put under him it is evident that he put all that he who put all things under him is accepted now when all things are made subject to him then the son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him that god may be all in all otherwise what will they do now who are baptized for the dead? If the dead do not rise at all, why then are they baptized for the dead? And why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, then what advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die." 
Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and don't sin. For some do not have knowledge of God. And I speak this to your shame. But some will say, How are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow that the body that shall be, but mere grain. Perhaps wheat or some other grain, but God gives it a body as he pleases and to each its own seed. All flesh is not the same. There is one kind of flesh of men and another of animals, another of fish, another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies. But the glory of the celestial is one. The glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun and the moon and the glory of the stars. And they differ from star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body and it is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. And we'll pause right there. Now, I read all of that because I want us to get a good sense of where exactly Paul is coming from in this hope in the resurrection of the dead. Paul believes in a literal resurrection. In other words, not some uh, ghostly, you know, ethereal, uh, you know, vapor-like existence in heaven. He believes he will get a new actual body. Now he calls it a spiritual body, but he doesn't mean a ghostly form. He means a real body, but one that is not like the natural body. In other words, spiritual is his way of contrasting what he will get versus the natural. There are two descriptions. Natural, what we have, what is weak, what will ultimately fall to shame, what will fall apart uh, when we get to a certain age and we start to hunch over a little bit and we start to not be so flexible and things start to break and things start to wear down and what ultimately ends with us lying, unmoving, unbreathing, unfeeling, unaware, dead, that body will come to shame. But the one that we get, which he calls a spiritual body, will be a heavenly body. A real body, but different. And I had a whole sermon this morning <coughs> lined up to go into this. And we will go into this next week. Um, m perhaps not all of it, I'm not sure. Specifically how to deal with some of the difficult parts of this. I had an explanation, an interpretation for verse 29. We'll get to all of that. But then... Then I, I came to church and I went into Sunday school with the youth and I thought, well, we'll just open to 1 Samuel and we'll pick up where we left off and we'll just do the Sunday school lesson and then I'll come over here and I'll preach the sermon because that's what I usually do. And some weird thing happened where as I was um, going through the Sunday school lesson, I'm like... I think this is better than the sermon. <laughs> now, maybe you, I don't know if you've ever had, but like, I think this lesson is more to the point than what I was going to stand up and say about this whole topic. So, I've, I've never, I haven't ever done this before, but we're going to pivot and the poor youth are going to get basically the same Sunday school lesson again um, because I want to be clear, this is not simply about doctrine and understanding, this has real implications. And to set the table for this, I want to read from you uh, Psalm 16, and I'll provide the necessary emphasis at the necessary place, but Psalm 16 is not long, and I know I've already read practically a chapter, but I'm going to read these verses to you anyway, and I want you to, to see the emphasis here. Um, it begins with the, with the introductory phrase, a mictum of David. In other words, this is a poem of David. This is a, a writing of David. So we know who the author is. This is the David. 
And this is what he, this is what he writes. This is what, what he pins. Preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. Now that's an interesting beginning. Preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. Think about pres preservation. Think about dust to dust and ashes to ashes. Think about the finite nature of our existence. And here is David's prayer. Preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. O my soul, you have said to the Lord, You are my Lord. My goodness is nothing apart from you. As for the saints who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Their sorrows shall be multiplied who hasten after another God. Their drink offerings of blood, those heathens, the pagans, the idol worshippers, I will not offer, nor take up their name, their names on my lips. O Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. This is who David's confidence and who his, his faith is in. Not his father Jesse, but in the Lord. Not in the other idols and the idol worshippers and the heathens, but in God. And when he thinks of God's inheritance in this prayer of preservation, he looks at what God has promised him and he says, his evaluation of it, these lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Uh, I have a good inheritance. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever said that about your earthly circumstance. Maybe you've done something foolish. Maybe you've done something reckless. And you look at it and you say, I'm glad that worked out. I don't know, but this is, that's like David's evaluation of this. My trust, my faith is in you. And what I have gained from this, my lot in this has fallen pleasantly, has fallen gracefully to me. He's pleased with the inheritance that he sees. Yes, I have a good inheritance. Verse 7, I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night seasons. He doesn't mean at night. He means in dark and difficult times. His heart reminds him, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. He is encouraged in dark times who his confidence is in. Who his life is lived for. Verse 9, therefore, in these dark seasons, therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. He's talking about when he dies. My flesh will rest in hope. When he goes on to say, you will not leave my soul in Sheol, you'll say, he's not talking about you're going to keep me from physically dying. No, he's talking about when I physically die. My flesh also will rest in hope. I'm going to die and when that happens, it will be in hope for you will not leave my soul in Sheol. Or some of your translations may say the grave. I, Sheol, the place of the dead. You will not leave me dead. That is David long before Christ died on a cross. And you see his confidence. In the dark seasons, I tell myself that you are my God. I live for you. You have given me a good inheritance. And if this dark season ends in my death, I will die in hope because you will not leave my soul in the grave. Nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. I will not rot in the ground I will not suffer in death. I will not experience, you know, torment in some purgatory where I await some spiritual salvation. You will not let me stay dead or suffer in death. You will show me the path of life. 
In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That is David's hope. So, with that said, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 17. That's to the left if you're in Psalms. If you're struggling with that, if you find 1 Kings and 1 Chronicles, keep going. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 17. Now David is called in the Bible a man after God's own heart. A title given to him by God. I would challenge you He is not called a man after God's own heart because of his great moral character. When we think of David, we will not have to think long or hard to come up with moral flaws. Um, David is not one of impeccable character. If I committed just a portion of the public sins David committed, you would not let me stand up here and say anything. I would be disqualified from standing up here and saying anything. And yet, God calls David a man after his own heart. What does that mean? Have you thought about that? Now, sometimes we'll get ourselves involved in devotions or books like a man after God's own heart or a woman after God's own heart. And those will undoubtedly encourage us to evaluate our righteousness and whether or not we're living rightly before God. That's all good and helpful. I'm not saying any of that's bad. But understand, David is not called a man after God's own heart because of his impeccable righteousness. He's called a man after God's own heart because David is a man of great faith. Saul, David's predecessor as king of Israel, is specifically disqualified from remaining as the king because he was the opposite of great faith. God would tell Saul to do something and Saul would do a different version of what God told him to do. And when you see why Saul did a different version, and I'm catching you up to my high school Sunday school class, It's always because Saul is afraid. Saul is afraid. His great climactic event is when he's told to go wipe out, you know, to totally destroy a people and a king, and he doesn't do it. He doesn't do it. And when Samuel challenges him on this, why didn't you do it? Why didn't you do it? Saul argues with him for a little bit, and then Saul finally says, well, the people wanted to do this, and I was afraid. And the verse is out of nowhere. He's the king. But Saul is a scaredy cat. He is an afraid man to the very end. Decades later when he is on the verge of actual death. He is so terrified that he tries to invoke witchcraft to save himself from the situation. Because he is afraid. The Bible in the New Testament tells us, as Christians, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. In other words, God does not want us to live in fear. God does not want us to be afraid. And David was not a man who lived in fear. David, by faith, did what God told him to do. David, by faith, when he seemingly catastrophically failed morally by faith believed God would forgive him and restore him I mean you think about that if and I'm, because of the audience I'm not going to get into the depths of David's moral failure on a Sunday morning lesson like this because I'm sure moms and dads would not appreciate the questions that might follow and maybe you would I don't know you can go tell them all about it but to just be graceful in talking about David's moral failure, it's unbelievable that he has the faith to believe God would be so quick to forgive. But he does. David's confidence is in God. Tying this into last week, you might remember when I held the little chess pieces up. How That would be a tough one to forget. I don't do that very often. And I I was trying to make the point, whether I made it successfully or not, I was trying to make the point that we look at life 
as an opportunity to do things and to live a certain way and to accomplish certain things to be a certain person to have a specific life. And the point with the whole queen and the pawn, if you remember, was some people seemingly have very few options and to others the whole world is open to them. Most of us fall somewhere in between. Everyone wants to have the whole world open up to them and it happens to a precious few amount of people. But the overall point was, even those to whom it seems like the whole world is, the whole world is open to them, they are confined, if you will, by a chessboard of an 8 by 8 square. In other words, the whole world is not truly open to them. We are confined as finite beings by the reality of our impending death. And, and whether you realize it or not, the reality of death affects the way that you think and feel all the time. All the time. If you um, would like to give your, say, 5 to 12 age child a nice Christmas, that's because of the reality of death. So what are you talking about? You know that, you know, kind of prior to age four and five, kids don't really understand what's going on on birthdays and Christmases. Like, they get excited if other people are excited, but they're not really, you know, <laughs> there's a level that you have to get to before you can get excited about something like Christmas Day. And then past age like 12 and 13, the excitement has diminishing returns. I, you know, I have um, three older girls. I can give them Everything they want for Christmas and I'm not going to get near the reaction as if I give my seven-year-old one big colorful box. It can have basically nothing in it and she will be like on cloud nine that there's this huge box, you know, that because that's... Yeah. So if you have kids in that range and maybe you're not like me, maybe it makes no difference to you whatsoever, maybe you have different feelings about Christmas, but if you're like, you know, I really want to make sure they have a good Christmas, you're coming to grips with the reality that you don't have 30 of those with that child. You've got like six. <laughs> if you've ever been a dad who's gone to work and come home to your wife telling you, guess who took their first steps today? And you're like, well, that sucks. <laughs> I wanted to see that. Like, that feeling is, I don't have forever. I can't go back. I can't get that back. If you get to your 20s, 25, 26, and you realize my early 20s, my young adult life, did not end up looking like or accomplishing any of the things that I thought when I was in high school I was going to do and accomplish or become, and you deal with the depressing nature of that, that is you coming to grips with the reality of a finite life. And if you spend a great amount of time working on something that doesn't yield years later what you expected it to yield, we are affected by the finite nature of our existence more than we ever would admit to ourselves. That's not how God sees things. That's not the reality. For God is eternal. But you and I, we're not eternal in the natural sense. I asked the Sunday school class this morning, I said, so tell me, is it, is it a good thing or is it a bad thing to see the world through a finite lens? And some, someone said, it was good. Because it's good to know the truth of the situation and it's good to think about that in terms of what you should be doing with your life. And I said, hey, that's exactly right. That's from the scriptures. James tells us, hey, your life is but a vapor in the wind. You know, you're like a flower that's here today and withers and dies tomorrow. This finite nature of our natural state is the grounds for Jesus saying, don't store for yourself treasures on earth, but store up treasures in heaven. In another parable, use the money that you have now to buy friends for eternity. This is Jesus. And by the way, that sounds crass, but that is a parable of Jesus. In other words, it is good as Christians to come to honest grips with the finite nature of our existence, not to put a blindfold on and pretend like, well, you know, we should just eat, drink, and be merry, and do whatever we want, etc. If, 
if we don't come to grips with the finite nature of our existence, we cannot see the salvation of Jesus and what it's meant to accomplish. But on the other hand, it's not good that we're in this situation in the first place. God did not make man in his own image to die. That's a consequence of sin. That's why death is an enemy in 1 Corinthians 15 that Christ must defeat. That the second Adam must defeat that conquered the first Adam. Do you, you understand? Death in and of itself is not good. And it's tragic that we look at our lives and we have to come to grips with the fact that one day either I will say goodbye to my son or my son will say goodbye to me. That is a tragedy. Reality. Reality that should shape our interactions and our life. But tragedy. And yet to be a man or a woman. After God's own heart. You can't be afraid of death. You can't be ruled by that fear. In other words, God wants us to look at the reality of death and adopt his perspective of it. See it as he sees it. This is a Jesus who tells Peter, yeah, at the end of your life, they're going to carry you away and crucify you. Follow me and do what I say anyway. In other words... We are not supposed to be afraid of the thing that's coming, but adopts God's perspective that he will not abandon us to that thing, but instead redeem us from it so that we do not suffer and, and die in agony and pain in torment in the grave forever. In fact, in the New Testament language, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. In other words, no suffering, no gap from life to life at all. Now I believe David understood this. And, and David, when, for whatever you would say about David in the Old Testament, this is not a man afraid of dying. And to me, that is the most compelling part of being a man after God's own heart. David is not afraid of dying. Now in chapter 16, after Saul's failure to set the stage for what we're going to read, David is anointed the future king of Israel. But he's a teenager at best. A boy at the youngest, a teenager at best when that happens. So he's told privately, secretly, by the prophet Samuel, hey, God has chosen you. You're going to be king of Israel one day. But that is decades in the future. Though David's given many opportunities to take the throne early for himself, he won't do it. Again, I would say because David has a more God-like perspective of this than other people. God said he was going to do it. God will do it in his time. He's not thinking, oh man, I'm 30 and I don't have the throne. Oh man, I'm 35 and I don't have the throne. Oh man, I'm 40. Am I ever going to have the throne? He's just, nope. He's not, he's not thinking in finite terms. He's thinking God's in control. <laughs> God knows what he's doing. Well, here's David then in chapter 17. Roughly late teens. Let's read. Really famous Sunday school story. Let's read. Now the Philistines gathered their armies together to battle and were gathered together at... Soka. Now that is how Zach Rutan told me how to pronounce it this morning. So I'm sticking with it. I think he did a good job. Um, which belongs to Judah. They encamped between Soka and Ezekah and Ephes Demim. I told him the last one was Demim. He said it wrong. I don't really know any of these. But I do know the Philistines. The Philistines were an ancient seafaring people who took advantage of the fact that God had overthrown the Canaanites to move into the promised land of Israel and become Israel's chief rival in the land. When it says they were gathered together in battle to fight Israel, this was not like, hey, where should we draw the boundary line? This was neither nation wanted the other one to exist or hold land in the promised land. So this is like an existential battle. Not in the spring when they go out to war and establish boundaries. This is uh, 
total, you know, annihilation of the other nation. One nation will become the servants of another. This is, they're fighting for the same territory here. This is not so much invasion as who's going to control what's here. That's what it is. And it says there, you know, encamped on these mountains. Verse 2, And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together, and they encamped in the valley of Allah, and they drew up in battle array against the Philistines. The Philistines stood on a mountain on one side, Israel stood on a mountain on the other side, with a valley in between them. In other words, the geography dictated, don't think like, you know, mountain peaks, think like, I think of like Scotland and the rolling, you know, rocky, grassy mountains. The Philistines have taken high ground and the Israelites have taken high ground and there's this rolling valley beneath them in between and neither wants to charge at the other one because you're surrendering the high ground and going into the valley where the other one was. So it's a standoff is what it is. Geography has dictated now a standoff. And the armies are there and nobody's moving because if you give up your hill, they're going to come take it. So we're in a stalemate, essentially. It says, And a champion went out from the camp of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head. He was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a bronze javelin on his shoulders. Now the spear of his staff, the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam. Look, you can read commentary and notes as to how big and how heavy all this stuff was, but I can save you uh, I can save you a little bit of trouble. Goliath was somewhere between 7 and 9 foot tall. So, he was not the coloring book depiction of, you know, the jolly green giant 20 stories high and itsy bitsy David. The Bible doesn't say he was. At max, about nine foot tall. It, it all depends on how many inches was a cubic. Men around seven and a half feet tall. Now we've, we have people comparable to this um, and they're not all the skinny little basketball players either. Uh, you remember, I think of Andre the Giant. You remember Andre the Giant? Andre the Giant was like seven four, seven five. He was no bean pole. I mean, that guy was a tank. And, and, and Goliath is a, a much larger than any human being would be comfortable being around kind of man. That's, that's who he is. And we're not meant to think that it was Goliath and his army of 40 giants or a thousand giants. He was out there in front of everybody for a reason. He was a man. <laughs> And, and no one wanted to go meet him. He, he could hold up a hundred pounds of weight and armor like it was no big deal. And again, I would encourage you, go read the tales of uh, a, a man like Andre the Giant. <laughs> and him just picking up, you know, the actors in the, in the Princess Bride movie and flinging them around like they're, like they're nothing. I mean, go, the, this, is, this is a warrior. And they're in a standoff. And he comes and he makes a champion's pitch at how to resolve the conflict. It says, verse 7, The staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his iron spearhead weighed 600 shekels, and the shield bearer went before him. Then he stood and he cried out to the armies of Israel. And he said to them, Why have you come out to line up in battle? Am I not a Philistine? And you the servants of Saul? Now Saul is described as being a head and shoulders taller than all the Israelites. So it stands to reason the guy who should have gone out into the battlefield to take care of the Philistine is Saul, the king. I mean, you got the tallest Philistine. You got the biggest Israelite. Let's, let's go at it, you know? <laughs> but Goliath is more accommodating than that he says choose a man for yourselves doesn't have to be Saul it could be anybody and let him come down to me if he is able to fight with me and kill me then we will be your servants but if I prevail against him and kill him you shall be our servants and serve us now these kinds of champions pitches were often made in historical fights and never honored and if they're not going to be honored here either if Saul marches down there and gets his head lopped off by Goliath Israel's not just going to oh, everybody lay down their swords and say okay you can be our bosses now and, and the same thing doesn't happen when David takes care of Goliath either the Philistines aren't all like oh okay just tell us where you want us to live. And, uh, but, but these kinds of challenges were nevertheless common because they were incredibly intimidating. I mean, if one side has a champion that's willing to put this forward and another side doesn't have a single person willing to take it up, that's a little demoralizing. 
It says, verse 10, And the Philistines said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul, notice who hears it first in the text, when Saul Saul, who had the obligation, the king, and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. What did I tell you? Saul was a man afraid of dying. He was a finite man who knew he was finite and who was terrified of his own end. It never leads him to a good place. Verse 12, now David was the son of that Ephrathite of Bethlehem, Judah, whose name was Jesse, who had eight sons, and the man was old and advanced in years in the days of Saul. The three oldest sons of Jesse had gone to follow Saul to the battle. The names of the three sons who went to battle were Eliab, the firstborn, next to him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest, and the three oldest followed Saul. But David occasionally went and returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep. David knew Saul a little bit. Saul knew David. David would come, and as effeminate as it sounds, would play his harp to make Saul feel better. Saul had given David an honorary title armor bearer. I don't think David actually bore any armor for Saul. Saul wouldn't have had just one guy. But, but he, David gets an honorary title. And this says, look, David would not serve full time as Saul's little minstrel and armor bearer. He would go back and forth and it just so happened he was back now and not forth with Saul. He's at home taking care of his father's sheep at Bethlehem. The three oldest boys are at war with Saul. Somebody's got to do the Menial chores. And the Philistine drew near and pre presented himself 40 days, morning and evening, 80 times they listened to Goliath's pitch. Verse 17, Then Jesse said to his son David, Take now for your brothers an ephah of this dried grain and these ten loaves. The brothers are going to get some dried grain and loaves. And run to your brothers at the camp. And carry these ten cheeses to the captain of their thousand. <laughs> Jesse's no fool. Uh, there's a captain that's going to decide when and where my boys fight in a war. And make sure you deliver ten cheeses to that captain. And know they're from Jesse, who's the dad of the three boys. And maybe they don't need to stand at the front of the line when we all charge into battle. Jesse's not an idiot. And bring back news of them, of your brothers. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. Fighting doesn't mean broad conflict, probably some skirmishing, but mostly it was a big valley in between them listening to Goliath every day. So David rose early in the morning, left the sheep with the keeper and took things and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the camp as the army was going out to the fight, shouting for battle. Just so happens David arises as everyone is mobilizing for the day. For Israel and the Philistines had drawn up in battle array, army against army, and David left his supplies in the hand of the supply keeper. He does not exactly get an A for the mission. He, <laughs> David is less interested in gaining the favor of the captain. He is a younger brother. Do any of you have a younger brother? I don't know if you've got a younger brother like David. But David wants to be involved. And he sees everybody's drawn up for battle. I'm going to go too. You know, <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm heading to the lines. You know, the soldiers are getting ready to fight. I'm going to go with the soldiers. I'm going to go talk to the soldiers. So he just leaves his dad's bribe with the supply keeper and charges off to what he wants to do, which is perfectly like younger, every younger brother that I know. Certainly my son. Reggie, I thought of you a lot this morning in Sunday school. Uh, it says, as he, he greeted his brothers, as he talked with them, there was the champion. The Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, coming up with the armies of the Philistines. And he spoke according to the same words. So David heard them. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were dreadfully afraid. So the men of Israel said, it's interesting, it doesn't take the men of Israel very long here. Have you seen this man who's come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. It shall be that the man who kills him, the king, will enrich with great riches. Will give him his daughter, the guy will become a prince and give his father's house exemption from taxes in Israel. And what I said in Sunday school is not much changes, does it? <laughs> the great reward of not having to pay taxes. That makes the top three. Prince, rich, no taxes. That's the, those are the three things. 
David, it's like, you mean anybody who goes and does that gets those three things? How come you guys aren't charging out there then? You know, if you're telling me any person among the tens of thousands who are listening to this guy can just march out there, kill Goliath, and become rich, become a prince, and never pay taxes, and not nobody's going out there, and David is, again, the annoying little brother, right? Who's like, I do it, you know? I get it, like, <laughs> you know? So David spoke to the men. Notice how he reiterates it. What shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Now David, at least to this point on the surface, out of his mouth, is setting this up differently from everyone else. He's setting this up as the uncircumcised Philistine. Uncircumcised has nothing to do with circumcision or not. It has everything to do with being a heathen being a servant of other gods or being the servant of Israel. And that's why he says, who is this heathen, this uncircumcised Philistine, compared to the armies of the living God? In other words, who's this guy who serves dead gods <laughs> compared to the armies of the living God? The people answered him in this manner saying, yeah, that's what's going to be done to the guy who kills him. And David's like, okay, I asked the question, they reiterated, verse 28, now Eliab, uh, Eliab, his oldest brother, heard him when he spoke to them, and Eliab's anger was aroused against David. And he said, why did you come down here? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? You know, it's not enough that, you know, he, <laughs> he reminds David, you know, sheep are not particularly violent creatures. Uh, it's, <laughs> you know, it's like, your job is to watch sheep, and there's Few of them. Did, you know, who did you leave the few sheep with that, that are in the, the wilderness? And then he says, I know your pride and the insolence of your heart. For you've come down to see the battle. In other words, you didn't come down here to run an errand for dad. You came down here to, to pretend you are more than what you are. You're uh, the shepherd kid who's supposed to be watching sheep. And you came down here to pretend that you're a soldier. David said, what have I done now? Is there not a cause? In other words, you know, shouldn't I, shouldn't I react this way? <laughs> and again, annoying little brother. So he turns away from his brother. He turned from him toward another, another random person. And he keeps saying the same thing and said the same thing. You know, hey, you're telling me that somebody's going to be rich and powerful and all we got to do is go kill this heathen? You know, come on, we serve the living God. And he's going around saying this to, to soldiers. <laughs> who, by the very fact that they haven't charged out there, are admitting they're too afraid to do it. He does this so annoyingly that the words get back to Saul. I don't know how annoying you have to be in an army for what you're doing to get back to the king, but David crossed the threshold. He was either demoralizing enough that some captain said, would you tell Saul that he's got an honorary armor bearer out here, you know, stirring up trouble. I, I don't know what happened, but it was reported. Then Saul sent for him. I got to tell you, I think that that's nice of Saul. You know, Saul doesn't expel him or say, get out of the camp. Saul, who knows David a little bit and who we're told in chapter 16 to this point likes David, says, just, and maybe you've done this, just tell the kid to come here and I will, I will talk to him. Okay? <laughs> then David said to Saul, now this is David's chance, this is how you know David's sincere, because if he's going to back out, this is the time to do it. Right? I mean, it's one thing to go bragging about in the camp when you don't think you're actually going to have to fight anybody, but now he's in front of the king. And he says, let no man's heart fail because of him. I'm not sure if David meant that as a backward insult to Saul, who had, again, refused to go out and meet Goliath himself. But it kind of sounds like that. You know, let no man's heart fail. Let no one fall down afraid. Let no one out of, you know, lack of courage. He's talking to Saul, who Goliath is publicly mocking. And this kid, whether... 14 or 19, whatever. Your servant will go and fight with the Philistine. 
Uh, and Saul said to David, You are not able to fight against this Philistine, for you are a youth, and he is a man of war from his youth. In Sunday school, I said it, it would be like Reggie going to the varsity basketball team and be like, Hey, I can play. And somebody looked at him and said, You're not going to. The moment they box you out, you're going to go flying into the first row. You, 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 you can't play. You know, it's <laughs> the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. You know, you can't. <laughs> you're a kid. This is a man who's been a warrior since he was a kid. Now, David's pitch here is unbelievable. And I mean that in the purest, most honest sense. This is an unbelievable story that he's getting ready to tell. It's so unbelievable that part of me wonders, is any of this embellished or is this actually fact? Okay? And I'm sure none of his brothers or his dad believed any of this. But this is his reasoning. Now listen to this. David said to Saul... You should let me fight because your servant used to keep his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear <laughs> How would you react if your teenage son who you sent out to feed the animals came back in and informed you today I killed a lion. <laughs> I mean let's say you lived in a place where there were lions. How would you react? How is things in the field today? David, Dad, you're not going to believe it. I killed a bear. <laughs> you're not believing that. You're like, okay. Uh, you either, and uh, the brothers are looking at the dinner table like, <laughs> you know, and Dad, you know, there's only a couple different, one is I'll believe it when you go drag his body in from wherever you killed it. And even then it's probably like, where did you find this thing? You know, where did you find this dead lion or the dead bear? He said, and when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went out after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from the mouth. And by the way, David does not say this was a ranged attack. Listen to this. And when it arose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck it and killed it. Would you believe that? Anybody here willing to believe that story? It's one thing to think I killed Evelyn, my daughter, seven years old, of course. It's one thing to think he threw a rock at it. He's saying, I grabbed it by its mane and hit it and killed it. I mean, if you don't think that's funny, you checked out and you're waiting to go to lunch because that, that's not believable. It says... Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them seeing as he has defied the armies of the living God. Moreover, David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And I don't know what Saul must have been so overwhelmed by the zeal of this. And again, you got to know, Saul believed in the living God. Saul had seen miraculous things. So God to Saul is not some make-believe pie-in-the-sky fairy tale. Saul had seen supernatural things. And this is overwhelmingly provocative. And he says, go and the Lord be with you. <laughs> now... Those of you who are looking at your clock, I'll save you the trouble. I'm not going to read everything that happens. We know what happens. David wins. But I want, to, I want you to see how David sees this whole encounter here. He says, when I was a shepherd, I had a job. And my job was to protect sheep. And when the worst threat against the sheep that you could imagine came up, I did my job and God saved me. And we're all, I mean, I think David sees himself, again, armor bearer, honorary though it may be, we are the armies of the living God and we have a job. And just like God gave me the strength to do the job at home, he will give me the strength to do the job here. That's his reasoning. He's not afraid of dying, or at least doesn't display any visible fear of death. We know, Psalm 16, what he thinks will happen when he dies. 
Because he knows he's going to die at some point. He simply believes, if God's given me a job, I'm going to do it and God will let me do it. That's it. And not even the fear of death stops him from that. Now, this is why we deviated from 1 Corinthians 15. Because we cannot serve God the way He has called us to serve Him if our minds are crippled by fear of what could happen if things go wrong. If you don't have the conviction to see your place before God as a divine work that He has called you to, then you will not have the courage to perform it when things get really scary and tough. If you don't see your commission to go and be light in the world, or to stand up to evil, or to be righteous, or to love the Lord God with all your heart, or to be the father, or the mother, or the employee, or the witness, or whatever it is, if you don't see that, as David did, this is my job. I'm a servant of the living God, who gives me jobs. If you don't see it that way, then when things get really scary, you will be scared. And you won't do the job. This is the context in which Paul is saying, look, I suffer each day. In 1 Corinthians 15, the sermon was going to be and will be next week. I die every day. But I'm not afraid of dying every day because... I'm at peace. The, the lines of my inheritance are pleasant to me. I'm not afraid of death. I'm just doing my job. There is something really powerful to meditate on here. And though I'm out of time, and though I'll close with prayer, I'm going to ask you to think about this next week. And when we come back and talk about the resurrection as some doctrinal thing next week, understand, you cannot disconnect this from how you live your life. If you do, it will mean practically nothing to you. It must mean practically everything in the way you live. But it won't if you can't see it for what it is, which is the power over fear. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, I love you and I pray that as we meditate on these things this week, as, as this comes to mind and and Lord, I sure hope that it does, that we will want to be people who are not afraid and not dictated by the fear of a finite existence, but that we will be courageous, that we'll know what we're supposed to do with our lives, that we'll have a sense of purpose in the way that we live, and that we will live that way undeterred, assured that you will not abandon us to the grave, that if worse comes to worse, you will spare us, you will save us, you have given us an inheritance that we can trust in. Give us the power and the strength to live that way and to apply 1 Corinthians 15 that way as we finish well in this letter. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.